Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about how to swish your niche. <laughs> <laughs> or switch your niche, depending on potato, potato. You're so French, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> you, that is the first time anyone said that to me, but I'll take it. <laughs> cool. All right. So this was inspired by a, a listener email. Thank you very much, Nick T. The topic is basically, what do you do? If you've built up a business, you, you're, you've been a soloist or, or at least maybe running a small firm or whatever it is, but you, you've been running a business and you decide to pivot it in a way that is pretty significant. Let's say completely different audience, com- completely different thing. Maybe you're picking a different segment of your life that you're excited about. As you get older, you get more excited about um, some other thing. Like if in two years I decided to start I don't know, teaching martial arts instead of coaching people about pricing or something like that, like a real radical change. It's different than starting from scratch, actually. I think it might even be harder in a lot of ways than, say, going from a full-time job and starting a side hustle and then turning that into a business. Well, yeah, it's almost like you're unwinding the things that you've talked to people about for for that time. Mm-hmm there's a desire or a temptation or a, or a wish at least that you can sort of somehow leverage the, the stuff you've been doing as a solo operator in your current business into case studies and testimonials and some sort of credibility indicators for your new business. And this is really where it gets, uh, one place where it gets really tricky uh, if you're making a significant change so anyway, we want to come at that from a few different angles today for people who might be in that situation. Was your most recent change this significant? Did you feel like a complete change when you're sort of post-consulting biz? Because you went from in-house consulting to your own consulting thing. That's a really smooth, that feels like a smooth transition to me. Well, it was a little bit. I mean, not as dramatic as what we're talking about here because I've been consulting my whole career. So there's nothing really new in my story about consulting. But when I started this business in 2007, the last jobs that I'd had and the last companies I created were all around uh, human resource and change consulting. So it was like big, bodacious change, but it wasn't specific to, oh, let me change your brand. My challenge at that time was to take the stories and experiences I'd had in all these different lives and put them in service to the new vision. The first thing I did was I did a handful of beta clients. I did them for free with the requirement that they serve as a reference if they were happy with what I did, but also that they give me continuous feedback so I could make the process better and the outcomes better. When I finally hung my shingle up, I had five really good stories and references. Of course, the first client never asked me for one, but I was ready. You know, I needed that for my own self-confidence to feel like I'd created something that was viable and worthy of charging for. Well, it's going to be a short episode because that's the same thing I'd recommend. But it maps completely to my experience and what's worked for a number of my students who have been in this situation. So I kind of like to define the problem a little bit first, because maybe there are people who aren't in this situation right now, maybe will be in the future. And if we describe the kind of problems that come up, they'll recognize it more easily and maybe be a little bit more entertaining too. In the past, uh, for a long, long time, I was in to some kind of tech development slash consulting slash training. 
So since 2002, when I left my my in-house application development job, and went, you know, I just smoothly transitioned into a consulting firm that did the same thing. Slowly worked my way up at that firm, became like management level VP. Then I went solo from there and did the exact same thing. But you know, I wanted to do it uh, value priced instead of by the hour, which is why I went solo. So then I, I was doing the solo thing, but the very same thing. And I had a reputation, I was writing for the magazine and stuff, and that had all happened while I was at the consulting firm. So when I went solo, I wanted to I wanted to take advantage of that. I didn't wanna leave that all behind. I knew if I jumped straight to a brand new thing and went solo at the same time, I was gonna be in big trouble. So I went solo first, got my legs under me, which a couple months, few months, maybe a few mortgage payments. And I'm like, okay, I've got this. I did what I refer to as like a half pivot where I was doing I was well known for FileMaker development, which is like a database platform. And I started doing FileMaker web development for the web. And so it was still appealing to my same audience. And then once I felt like that was under control, right around then the iPhone came out and I switched over to, to just web for a little while. Then I switched over to like uh, mobile web. And so it was always a progression where I could still point back to jobs I had done previously and, and you know, in the past year or two, and it still made sense. It still was like a credible story to tell. It all made sense. And then in 2016, I published Hourly Billing is Nuts, which was for a completely different audience. It was like going meta and talking to my colleagues instead of my customers. And that was where it got really weird because I had all of my stuff for uh, my mobile consulting business at jonathanstark.com. And I'd spoken it over a hundred conferences and there were like videos all over, you know, all over the place of me talking about mobile, mobile, mobile. I had at that time, 10 years of tweets about mobile, mobile, mobile. I was pretty much inactive everywhere, social media, except for Twitter. But I had like a huge history of activity in this particular space. And it was all associated with my name. All of this stuff, I was basically like, well, I'm going to have to chuck this all out the window. And what I tried to do was, was ramp that down while I ramped up a new website, which at the time was called Expensive Problem. Published the book, ramped up the new website. I, I barely put my name on the website anywhere and because I, I imagined that customers would be confused, but you know, existing, because I had existing customers that I imagined that they might be confused by it. Uh, and it, it did actually happen in a couple of cases where people came across that stuff, uh, even in the early days, and were asking me about it. They're just like, oh, that's what's going on there. Didn't turn into a problem, but it's like you ramp one down, you spin one down and spin the other one up. And my advice is exactly like yours, where it was like, okay, for somebody doing this, the main thing is like, how do you make a smooth transition cash flow wise financially? That's the thing that's going to kick you out of the game. That's the thing that's going to make you have to go like get a job in-house because whoops, I tried to pivot and like it didn't make it. You know, you jump, jump across the chasm and like only make it halfway. For me, that was a really busy year, year and a half where I was basically running two businesses at once or running one and trying to spin up another one. It was all about building up credibility in the new space with the new audience so that I could tell that story in a credible way and like start to attract leads, spin up the whole marketing thing, all the content, all of that stuff. I'd been blogging about it a little bit since like 2009 on the side. So I had some material to start with. I knew there was interest. I, I believed in all of it. It was just like, how do I make a living doing this? It's going to be a huge number of small ticket 
clients, people buying books and courses and that kind of thing. When I first started, I took the consulting model I was using for mobile and I mapped it as closely as possible product wise to something in, in the coaching realm, the price coaching realm. I had been doing lots of monthly retainers. That was my main income with consulting. So I, with mobile consulting. So I was like, all right, what's like a high ticket one-on-one coaching arrangement I can set up. That's like a monthly recurring amount. You know, I could probably charge like a 10th or a 20th of, of what I was getting from mobile. Cause the, the nature of the clients was just radically different, but I, so I need like five or 10 of them. So what can I do? So I, I designed a, basically that I, I said, okay, I'm going to do my exact retainer thing, but I'm going to do it for a different audience, which means it's going to mean a lower price point and I need to have more of them. So it was sort of an adjustment. When Todd Truster came on a couple episodes ago and he talked about doing one-on-one coaching as paid market research and paid product development, that was exactly what I did where I'm doing this one-on-one stuff. I'm testing ideas that I, that had worked for me personally in my situation, but I'm like, taking that knowledge and trying to transfer it to people who are in different situations. You know, maybe they hadn't written a book or whatever the thing was, you know, they 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 were in a different place. They had different. The point is that through that period, I was charging like, depending on the time, a thousand to $1,500 a month, instead of 10,000 or $15,000 a month per student or client to prove the model build up the the products and get testimonials, get a track record, all of that stuff. So including Todd, we basically all three did the same thing where it was like, go from consulting, pivot, do one-on-one coaching style work or consulting style work while you prove the new stuff. Maybe you do a couple of early ones for cheaper free, which I also did to get testimonials and just like get the rough edges off, build confidence, like prove to yourself that what worked for, for you will will work for someone else and that you can transfer the knowledge. I was about to say it's a slow road. Looking back on it, it really didn't take that long, but it felt like it took a long time. (laughs) Yeah. It always feels like it it does a lot of work and it was doing two different things at once. It was very, I felt very schizophrenic. It was like, I was very split. The better you are, or rather the more you're recognized for, for the first niche, the harder it is to transition in the second, right? Because I'm thinking of some people that I've talked to who their challenge was, like one guy in particular, he had um, 50% of his business was in one area, but he, he didn't really talk about it much. He didn't do a lot of writing. He didn't do a lot of speaking. It was He was known for that kind of consulting, but he wanted to do something new. It was interesting because he actually wasn't so worried about the existing clients because he said, they're going to keep coming to me because I'm really good at this and I'm not going to suddenly stop doing it. So I'm not worried about what they think about the pivot. In the situation you described, you had to worry about it, right? Because you're getting your work from that public persona. There's a lot of information out there and people are finding you because of that. Right. I wasn't getting tons of word of mouth. It was it was from things I'd done publicly, like speaking engagements. Yeah. And Yeah. So I think a lot of it depends on, you know, where you are right now as you think about making the transition and how do do you get your work? And I think we always overestimate how existing clients are going to feel about these shifts, right? We're always so worried we're going to lose them. And it 
typically that doesn't happen that way. They don't even go back and look at your website. They don't care what your message is unless you ask them for a reference of some sort, you know, and then they have to describe to someone what you do for them. I mean, they just don't, they don't, you're not on, your stuff is not on their radar. Correct. Yep. The the one place where I think it, it got on my old client's radar was social media because I did have people that followed me there and, you know, I start, I'm starting to tweet about stuff linking, you know, I started a new podcast that wasn't really for their, their space. Like I have an, an old podcast that was tech focused and it was, con- I was continuing to do it. I still do it. And I created a new podcast that was around ditching hourly billing and I'm tweeting about it. And they're like, wow, we listened to his other podcast. So we, maybe we should check out this one. And they listen to it. It's like, well, I can hear it's the same guy, but what, <laughs> what is this? I mean, just total disconnect. Yeah. Uh, there was a while when I tried to have them coexist on my main website, jonathanstark.com, and it just got so bizarre and weird. Like, I went on Clients from Hell, which is a really popular podcast and, and blog for freelancers. It was like part of my new audience. And so, like, I had, the, I was going to have this influx of traffic when the episode went live. So, like, here's my, here's my consulting website. And at the top, it's like, did you hear, hear me on Clients from Hell? You know, click here for the bonuses that I talked about on that episode. <laughs> like, <laughs> if at the same time I was running some sort of, um, you know, LinkedIn social media campaign directed at credit union presidents, and they're like, oh, who is this guy? And they click through, I'm like, Clients from Hell, what? Like, what is this? It's just such like you, on the one hand, you've got you just have these two different audiences that don't mix at all. Existing clients, they're not going on your website. They, why would they? There's nothing there for them. But uh, the social media did kind of get it on people's radar. And if I if I had been doing any, I, I completely ramped down my marketing. I pretty much ramped down all of my marketing activities for the mobile stuff. So I wasn't driving people to that website anyway, but I was getting a lot of confusion on social media. Social media was probably the most, uh, the website and social media were the two clumsiest situations. So then I, I was able to spin up a new website with a different domain name. And just, I sent all the traffic there for the, the coaching stuff, but social media, I, I tried to do that, but, but people would just at message the wrong account. And I'd be like, Oh, could you at message me over there? It's like, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Social's work. more challenging. Yeah. So any, any advice around that for somebody who's got like a following on social media and maybe isn't, isn't as much of a word of mouth type of, you know, someone who's, who's been active on social media, who's trying to pivot? Well, I think it, it depends which platform in social media, because the way you can message people in LinkedIn is different than in Twitter. I mean, you can say it 20 times in Twitter and, and three quarters of your followers won't see it. It's more about the story you tell about why you made, not so much why you made the switch in terms of all the internals, but why you made the switch in terms of your client outcomes. So the more that you get that story said in a way that is truthful, genuine, also compelling, right? And is client focused, the better you make that story. And the website is the the best place to play with that right? Like in your bio or the about section, or even the, maybe even the landing page, depending on, you know, how much of a following you already have. And then you parse that story in, into social media. So it could be something as simple as, you know, in LinkedIn, you do a blog post that says, you know, why I left X for Y, or you could make it clever, why I divorced, 
this is so-and-so for so-and-so. I mean, if you really wanted to call attention to it, if that was your strategy. And then you piece that into other places. Like Facebook is a little bit longer form, but casual. You know, Instagram's all about the images. Twitter is, technically you have more than 140 characters now, but it's bite-sized chunks. And it's less about explaining and more about connecting. So I think in Twitter, the challenge is to keep, it's, it's like you're dropping breadcrumbs to get them to the new stuff. And sometimes it's okay to mix two and other times it isn't. Like Twitter wasn't around when I made my my last shift. And I don't think I would have, I, I just don't think I would have mixed it. Completely different audience. I've had clients where we just created a whole new Twitter account and said, yeah, it's a pain in the neck to run too. But until you're fully operational in your second niche, it's a great way to make it clear that it's different, but you have to run those accounts differently. They can't, you can't have the same content in both and look like you're the same person. That, I mean, that's just schizophrenic for real. Yeah. Yep. I tried to create a new Twitter account and it didn't work. Nobody like came over, you know what I mean? So what I, what I ended up doing was I used LinkedIn for the more businessy stuff, which was the mobile consulting because those clients were, you know, a little bit more enterprise management type people. And perhaps more likely to be active on LinkedIn. I was just like, well, I'll use LinkedIn for any social media stuff I'm sharing there. And then I use Twitter for the for business coaching and pricing stuff. And that worked okay for a while. It was still kind of confusing. I deleted my bios on both of them, so it was just blank. So, you know, if people came to it, it didn't it didn't give them any kind of shorthand for like normally I like to be like XY positioning statement, like I help X with Y and like be super clear. It just felt weird. I knew people were seeing it and getting confused. I mean, I wasn't imagining it. Like people were telling me, like, is this the right Twitter account? So I just deleted it. And then the what that leaves someone with, the only option is to like actually read the feed and not prejudge it. And then just like, I don't know, so that, that was the best I could do. But it was it was really clumsy, the whole thing. I don't know if there's a real smooth way to do it other than the couple of tips we've given so far. The example someone gave us was that, you know, gee, what's on my website feels like it's not truthful. And to me, that describes a scenario where you're making the, the pivot, but you're, you're creating your website so that it looks like you're fully in. And I think that's when it feels not authentic because you, it's, it's almost like the imposter syndrome, right? I've said I can do all this, but uh, I don't have any proof. Or I don't feel confident. Maybe you have the proof, but you don't feel confident in your abilities. I spoke to somebody that way recently who'd learned from a master and was really having trouble believing in his own head that he was ready, right, to take on those kinds of assignments independent of the master. So it's you have to find that way, not just for your own confidence, but to also build your clients, your future clients' confidence in you. I don't think it's it's your your X one day and your Y the next day. There's there's always a transition. It's gotta be in the story, you know, that I talked about breadcrumbs. That's what it is. It's the breadcrumbs that you you lay. And and part of that is the story that you tell about the shift. And there's usually some passion around that. You don't just wake up someday and say, oh, I'm going to start talking to consultants instead of credit unions. There's a reason. And the reason might be complex. You might not, you know, you might be able to tell it in a soundbite. And even if you can, you still want the breadcrumbs. 
because that's what engages people is that, you know, that meatiness of your story. And it's all back to who you're serving. So the, the better you can get that story, and I mean, in a very genuine way, you're not making this stuff up, but the better that story, the more emotive, the more connective the story, the more connective tissue you build with your clients, the easier the transition. I do think that's important. I, I feel like appearing out of nowhere as this new thing without any kind of backstory in these days, this this new age of internet, uh, sort of social media profiles and like web history and all of that. You know, if you're like, you've already had a career and you're like making a completely new one, I feel like it would undermine your credibility. I, I know that you know, I'm kind of technical and if I come across a new person and they, they're putting forth like maybe some ideas, I, like who is this person? Like if I come to a like a blog post and there's no date or name on it, I have a hard time digesting it because I don't, I can tell that with that, those pieces of information, I kind of want to know, well, who's talking to me here? Like I want to know who's talking to me and I want to know if, if how old it is. And maybe it won't matter. Maybe it's a classic. Maybe it's a blog post from 1965. But I want to know that. Like, has it stood the test of time versus is this brand new? It doesn't have to be older. It doesn't have to be new. I just want to know what the context is so that I can kind of keep that in, in my head as I'm reading the information. Like, for whatever reason, I haven't really analyzed it a lot. But I do know that when I come to a blog post with no author's name and no date, I'm probably not going to read it unless someone... I trust sent me there and said, you got to read this. Just having like no history and just showing up out of nowhere feels really weird to me. Well, and a lot of people will do research and because either because you've said something and they're interested in becoming a client or we get this sometimes when people pitch us to be guests on the podcast. It's, so I'm going to look and see how much traffic their website is getting. I want to see what they talk about, what they write about. Um, what they speak about, because this is about speaking, people will look at that. And you've got to have a robust presence. It doesn't all have to be website. I mean, the website is, is kind of mission central for it. But you've got to have that robustness to it, or it feels false. And that's when people think, eh, that person isn't the real deal. So you just mentioned traffic to the website. So imagine a situation where You've got a website. It's for your old business that you're going to be slowly working your way out of. There's sort of there's sort of two situations that I see, and one is much more common than the other. The the less common one is that you have tons of traffic to the website. Let's say you've just been some sort of you know financial planning guru, and you've got just you know you've got all these links back to your website and all these articles. There's a temptation to be like, well, my new thing has nothing to do with that, but I've got all this traffic. Isn't there some way that I can kind of uh, move it over to the new site? And my knee-jerk reaction to that is no, because that's the wrong traffic. Like if, if it's that big of a pivot, I'm, I'm kind of like, mm. unless it's something like you're making a big announcement on your website, like I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to be doing something else. Here's the reasons why. To kind of try and sort of mush the traffic over to your other site, that feels a little skeezy to me to try and be slick about it or underhanded or sneaky about taking that traffic and somehow funneling it into uh, your new thing. I'm like, eh, I don't like that a lot. But the good news is not that many people have tons of traffic to their website and are also thinking about pivoting their business. I mean, uh, certainly there are, 
But the vast majority of cases, people I talk to, even who have successful consulting companies, and we're just talking about making some tweaks to their website, like changing the headline on the homepage, and they're not even pivoting, they get all panicky about it because they're afraid that that people are going to flip out. And I'm like, well, how much traffic do you get to your website? Like, oh, I don't know, like 500 views a month. Like, how many leads did you get last month from the website? Zero, one. Like, so really, what what is the risk? Like, you're not risking anything. But people's identity is so tied to their website. And it's like, and it's been it's been the way it is for like forever, with the possible exception of sporadically updating the blog. They really probably haven't changed their homepage in a real long time. And yet somehow they're, they feel like changing it is this very scary thing. If you're not getting that much traffic to your old website anyway, it's not really doing anything for you. And I, I like it kind of like the way you described it, where it's kind of this playground for you to figure out what your new language is going to be, maybe on your about page or, yeah, I would probably do, if it was me, I would do it on my about page where I kind of like explored the the reasons for the shift and got really personal and talked about those sorts of things. Um, it's one of the few places on the website where I think it's okay to kind of like navel gaze and like really get into your own, your own stuff. Yeah. It's your and, page. Yeah. Right. And, and if, and it's not the homepage, like people went there on purpose yes. you know, to find out what's going on. Well, I think the other thing when you think about somebody with a bigger audience is that there's a trust issue here. And typically you have a big audience or you're getting a lot of traffic, let's put it that way, because you're doing something that's interesting. People are clicking on something and you're building trust. And so in my mind, you have that audience. There may be a way for you to take them with you on the pivot, but the only way you're going to do it is by being really transparent. Super transparent. Yeah. Exactly. I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you've had the same experience where somebody who's a minor internet star and you're letting them into your inbox because they're they're interesting. They're giving you some value. And then they pivot and you just, you feel it. You feel like they're trying to suck the money out of your wallet versus trying to help you with a, with a problem. Here's, here's a, a tip that I think is useful for folks who are overly, I think in most cases unnecessarily, but, but feel very uncomfortable about letting their existing clients know about the possibility of this pivot or the impendingness of this pivot. And I talked, actually, I talked to other people too who aren't sure about the pivot and they want to experiment. Like it, it might not work and they know it might not work. And if it doesn't work in six months, they're going to try a different one. And then they're going to try a different one because they're more entrepreneurial and they're just looking for an opportunity more so than like what we normally talk about. But it's the same sort of question where it's like, how do I, how do I experiment with reaching a new audience without completely starting from zero? Is there anything that I can leverage from my existing site or any background that I can, that I can use? Actually, another case this comes up is when people's, people are still working for an employer and they don't want the employer to know that they're kind of experimenting with starting their own things. All of these things, I, I think, is sort of under the radar strategy, while you test the waters, might be helpful. And for me, what that means is, is operating in, I would probably start by just seeing if I can get a mailing list going and spreading the word through email, direct message, private areas, where you get super specific on who you're trying to reach, who you're trying to help, uh, what pain you're trying to help them with, um, or you know what your big idea is, like whatever the, the reason is, and then like what's your promise. 
let's say you're a developer, but you want to go into, but you're, you're a gym rat and you go to CrossFit and, and you think that your, your gym is just doing a terrible job of, of marketing and you really want to get into marketing. And you're familiar with the internet because you're a web developer. You, you get all that stuff and you put together like um, maybe you talk to the owner of your your gym and you're like, oh, you know, what do you guys think about online? Sort of blah, blah, blah. You have a little conversation. How's business? Are you getting enough new members? Can they sign up on? I notice you can't sign up online. Do you think that would be beneficial? How would that work for you? And you get like a, do a little research in private and put together a one page PDF checklist for people who run their own gym or yoga studio or karate studio and like. You've got this little idea, this little piece, and you spread it back channel. You back channel it to people and say like, hey, I'm working on this article for people you know, like you. I'd love to get your expert opinion on, like, does it make sense? Does the wording work? Have you tried anything like this before? What was your experience? And just spread the word via email, direct messages, uh, DMs in LinkedIn or Twitter. You can test that way and see if there's any interest. And then that can lead into... You just sort of like start this teeny little fire and you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is proving itself to be useful. And then you create maybe an email course, free email course based off of it. And like, Hey, you know, maybe you like that. Great. Maybe you would like this. Uh, if you want to share it with friends or if you go, oh, you're going to the conference, here's a link that you can share. It's totally free. Don't worry about it. Build up a little bit of a community that you can have a conversation with over email privately. Then at some point put together like sort of a lower rung part, you know, building your product ladder up from the bottom instead of what I usually say, which is the top. So build it up from the bottom, come up with like uh, something that's not super expensive or I suppose I could do it too, but I, I'd probably go from the bottom. I would probably say create like uh, a report, a, a white paper, a, um, maybe a short ebook and see if anybody's interested. Talk about it. See if you can get uh, three beta customers to do it, you do it for them for free in exchange for feedback on the marketing materials around it, the delivery, see if there's anything about the delivery you can optimize. Then you say, you know, I'm planning on charging 700 bucks for this. Do you think it's worth that? How would you react if this had been 700 bucks? And then get a sense from them what it was worth to them. And great, awesome, I'm glad you guys liked it. Listen, could I get a testimonial? If they give it to you, great. When I put get my website up, would it be okay to use this? Yes, it would, awesome. Um, thanks for that. Do you know anybody else who might benefit from this that you could put me in touch with or maybe introduce me to? All, all this is without a website. Like this is all behind the scenes. I'm sure that sounded like a lot of work because it is a lot of work. But what you're doing is you're basically creating results. You're creating like happy customers from the beginning before you ever have to go public with it. And once you trust that, it, oh, wow, this could work. I can reach the people. They do value the way that I'm teaching this. They are getting results. And the way that I ask for testimonials, I always want numbers. I don't want like, oh, he's such a nice guy. I want like, <laughs> you know, this transformed our business. This doubled our leads. This, um, right. you know, cut our workflow, you know, our timeline in half, whatever. What you just described is a lot less work than torpedoing your existing business on a whim to try something yeah. new. I mean, right. yeah. Yeah. So this under the radar stuff where... You can build your own confidence, start to get a small audience going and uh, and get this sort of conversation with the space underway. I think uh, it's a sort of side hustle approach, but it is under the radar and it builds that confidence. And I did I, I did do some of that personally, although it was a little bit more public than that. It probably would have made it easier for me if I had been a little bit more under the radar with it, to be honest, because I had a lot of 
it might have been imagined. It might have all been in my head, but it felt really, really awkward to have those two websites up at the same time and the two social media accounts going. It was like, oh. Coming back to the topic of leverage and Todd Tresseter's ideas is that there might be an opportunity for you to leverage the old business. If you're really making a dramatic pivot because you want out of what you did before, just keep in mind, there may be a way for you, as you prove the new business, to sell the old business, to transfer it in some way and get some ongoing revenue, to bring in somebody to do that work that you've been so good at selling, knowing that that it's going to trickle trickle out right? Because if you're not investing in continuing to build the brand and the business, it will trickle out. But you could certainly find a way, well, not certainly, you could maybe find a way to leverage the stuff that you used to do. There's probably somebody who would be thrilled to have the work that you did in your first niche. That is, I never thought about that for a second. That's really interesting. Yeah. Had I thought about it, I'm sure I would have ruled it out anyway, but I wish it had at least occurred to me. There was all this reputation built up. It was like, well, why why couldn't have I taken on somebody who wanted, I don't know, it would have been weird. That would have been, it would have been hard for me to do. Yeah, and you, you might not have wanted to do it, but it's one of those things where it's really easy for us as, as consultants and freelancers where we say, okay, I've just, I've had enough. If I meet another client with X problem, I'm going to vomit, right? So you just say, all right, so we're going to go to the next one. But in fact, you've built a business. Now it's harder if you're a freelancer trading time for money, right? Because you got to switch out a body. It's, it's a little different than having um, some intellectual capital that you can leverage or sell. But sometimes it's as simple as you had your name as your domain name, but sometimes it's as simple as that, is that somebody really wants that domain name. And you can, you can sell that, or you can sell a process, or you can sell access to you, or you can sell access to the client base that you built. And so then you agree to spend, you know, six months, a year, whatever it is, making those introductions. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to leverage things before we just pull the plug. I, I'm, it's kind of embarrassing. I didn't think of that. Like, because I have a <laughs> really big network that I still have that would be valuable to lots of people, <laughs> you know, like the network alone and the the trust people had in me from that time period, it would have felt like starting up like a third thing if I was going to like, it's like pivoting the old business, you know, like I've got the old business, then I'm going to pivot that and also start a new one. I think I would have been overwhelmed, but, but now that I have a VA, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was back then I was so just religious zealot about just being a lone wolf that, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty well redlined in my number of hours that I could do the two things I was doing. Well, and it's, it's not easy. I mean, I've sold a company and I was there for the transition and it took longer. Well, I shouldn't say it took longer. It probably took the same amount of time I thought it would. It was more, uh, it required more emotional and intellectual attention than I thought it would, but it was very well paid for it. So I've never ever, ever regretted making that move. So yeah, I mean, you just have to decide whether it's worth it to you. And, you know, and we all make choices based on the value that we ascribe to it. Mm -hmm. 
You're still Ooh, thinking about that, aren't you? <laughs> no, I was just taking it. I was thinking, I'm like t- taking a couple of notes and I was like, at some point you're either going to, you're going to spin down the old business one way or the other. It's, you're either going to sell it or you're going to just like let it peter out. There needs to be some kind of transition plan. So I suppose, I mean, with me, it was a hundred percent me like showing up and being smart. So I, I hadn't groomed any successor or anything like that. So it would have been, um, it would have been really, 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 it would have been, it's just easier to, to, to take the energy I would have done to do that and then like pour it into the new thing and spin that up, which reminds me of maybe one last thing about for folks who are, are getting a good amount of traffic to their existing website and they, they're reluctant to let that go, even though it's completely the wrong audience who trust you for a completely different reason. When you nail something like your new thing, if you nail your new thing, you're going to have plenty of traffic. Like if you, if you, I suppose I should qualify that by saying if you do it in the way that we tend to talk about here. So we're not talking about starting a landscaping business where you need to be doing great in the local SEO battle to really be getting the clients. Like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are creating unique expertise in a particular area around uh, hopefully a compelling idea that they're trying to put forth into the world and sort of lead people in this this uh, mental transition, whatever whatever the case may be. I just wouldn't, I've never worried that much about traffic. Even though, I mean, I've gone through periods when like, you know, I was in the news a lot and I had like a million hits to my website. And like, you've been like in, in big publications like what, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and like, mm-hmm. it's it's not, you know, like that and five bucks will get you a Starbucks. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's just, it's, it's not ego. that big a deal. It's not revenue. Yeah. Right. So don't be too reluctant to just let that go or to, to repurpose it some other way, sell it to somebody else because you're getting a ton of traffic to the site and funnel leads to some new people, whatever. I don't know. You know, maybe you can repurpose it somehow, but I feel like maybe it's my mentality, but I feel like if you, if you really nail it, you're going to be getting new traffic to the new site before you know it. Mm-hmm. You know, so like, yeah. you know, you do this behind the scenes thing, maybe you build up an email list. You're not going to care that much about your traffic. You're going to care more about building up your email list. And yeah, which is it, worth a whole fine. lot more. Way more. Well, and, and let's also remember that there's all kinds of ideas that you can create a business out of. I mean, we've talked, I think, a little bit about Marie Kondo and tidying up, well, I just saw that she is searching for $40 million in investment capital to build out a digital idea. And what do you want to bet? I think I read that over the weekend. What do you want to bet? She already has it and more, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) It's, you know, the right idea will connect people and the right idea will also build revenue as long as you build the business model around it. Cool. So I think the moral of the story is that um, it's, it's probably uh, going to be a busy 18 months <laughs> where you're, you're kind of doing two things at the same time where you're, you're trying to keep the lights on with the, the old business and trying to ramp the new business up, get some cash flow and audience going over there, keep lots of transparency throughout the process, build an audience under the radar. If you're nervous about people, what for whatever reason, you're nervous about scaring people off or spooking your existing clients. And then at some point you're going to sell or ramp down the old business and you're going to believe in the new model and you're going to be, you know, it's either throwing enough off enough money or you can see that it will be in time for you to not hit the end of your runway. And, uh, boom, just like magic. 
(laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. It is a lot of work, but it's, it's something that you're going to be enjoying because you have this new idea. You've typically have got an energy around it that you don't have anymore. Right. For that core business. So, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful journey, right? As long as you're committed and you stick with it. Cool. All right. Do we have anything else on that? No, it's switch your niche. See, I said niche, Jonathan. It's niche. It's niche. I know. So my problem is I had a podcast for years called spelled N-I-T-C-H. So that my mouth just doesn't want to say niche. It's okay. You can say it however you like. I've looked it up. Both pronunciations are allowed. That's right. That's right. (laughs) You can still say it that way, even if they weren't allowed. I do say tomato. No, of course not. Um, Okay. So that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.